Today we lament. Today we grieve. Today our hearts go out to the family of George Floyd, his friends and loved ones, and indeed all of those he represents and brings to our attention. One year ago today, this 46-year-old black man was murdered in Minneapolis by a white police officer who knelt on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds for the alleged use of a fake $20 bill. This shocking and tragic death started a chain of events which profoundly moved both white and black people in public declarations of fury, repentance, protest, condemnation and sorrow. Floyd's final choking cries, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, is a penetrating reminder of the racism that saturates our society. However, this man's death was also a rallying cry to people of all ethnic and social backgrounds that no matter how deep the scar of racism infects us, consciously and subconsciously, individually and organisationally, the transformative power of Christian gracism, the positive extension of God's favour to the marginalised colours, classes and cultures goes far deeper still. And so to commemorate this tragic landmark in human history, I want to take you through a shortened reading of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham City Jail. Dr. King sadly would not have been surprised by this news report one year ago. It was all too familiar to him. On April the 16th, 1963, he responded to eight white Alabama clergymen who were unhappy with his non-violent protests and marches against segregation and injustice in Birmingham, Alabama. As a minister, King responded to the criticisms on religious grounds. As an activist, he challenged an entrenched social system on legal, political and historical grounds. As an African-American, he spoke of the country's oppression of black people, including himself. As an orator, he used many persuasive techniques to reach the hearts and minds of his audience. This is a jarring yet beautiful letter. One that should resonate in the hearts of churches across the world. Over 2,000 years ago, another victim of injustice and oppression was lynched on a cross for just 30 pieces of silver. He has felt the pain and injustice of one year ago. In fact, he has felt the pain and injustice of all time gone and all time to come. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. His dying breaths and loving words are a provocation to all of us to love those who are seemingly different and speak up. His resurrection is a miraculous invitation to all of humanity to be changed by the power of God and to be change-bringers to the world around us. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I hope this historic letter brings light in the midst of darkness, joy in the midst of of sadness and hope in the midst of fog. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham City Jail.
dear fellow clergymen, while well, confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas, but since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill, I want to try and answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I'm here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in. I have the honour of serving as President of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and we were invited to be on call to engage in a non-violent direct action programme, if such were deemed necessary. But more basically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. And just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit by idly in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. But your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations, the city's white power structure. In any non-violent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist. Negotiation, self-purification and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city's fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action whereby we could present our very bodies as a mean of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national community. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Non-violent direct action seeks to create such a crisis 
and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatise the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive non-violent tension which is necessary for growth that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood and inevitably open the door to negotiation. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determining legal and non-violent pressure. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed. In the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation, for years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging dust of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smoothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted in your speech, stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up her eyes when she is told that Fantown is close to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concord an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-county drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you when you are humiliated day in, day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. 
when you are harried by day and hunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stand, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, says, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. At first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would agree with St Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. Segregation, to use the terminology of the just Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, substitutes an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. Hence segregation is not only politically, economically and sociologically unsound, it's morally wrong and sinful. There is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practised superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. We should never forget that, the, that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. Firstly, I must confess that over the past few years I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counsellor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will.
lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exists for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace, in which the Negro passively accepted his, his unjust plight, to a substantive and positive peace, in which all men will respect the dignity and the worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in non-violent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open, where it can be seen and dealt with. Like a boil that can never be cured so long as it's covered up, but must be opened up with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed, with all the tension its exposure creates, to the light of, of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. In your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But is this a logical assertion? Isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't this like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act by the misguided populace in which they made him drink hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see that it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I had also hoped that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. Time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more I feel that the people of ill will will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men working and willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, Time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. You speak of an activity in Birmingham as, as extreme. At first I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen 
would see my non-violent efforts as those of an extremist. I began thinking that the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community, one is complacency as a result of long years of oppression, people so drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodiness, that they have adjusted to segregation, and in part of a few middle-class Negroes who have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred, and it comes perilously close to advocating violence by men who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. I have tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need emulate neither the do-nothingism of the complacent nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalists. For there is the more excellent way of love and non-violent protest. I am grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church, the way of non-violence became an integral part of our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged by now, many streets of the South would, I am convinced, be flowing with blood. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself, and that is what has happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom, and something without has reminded him of that it can be gained. If one can recognise this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand why public demonstrations are taking place. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations, and he must release them. So let him march, let him make prayer pilgrimages to City Hall, let him go on freedom rides and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in non-violent ways, they will seek expression through violence. That is not a threat, but a fact of history. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me, God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before they make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified for the very same crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. 
The other Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth and goodness and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I am thankful, however, that some of our white brothers in, sa- in the South have grasped the meaning of this social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. They have languished in filthy, roach-infested jails, suffering the abuse and brutality of policemen who view them as dirty nigger lovers. Unlike so many of their moderate brothers and sisters, they have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action to combat the disease of segregation. Let me take note of my other major disappointment. I have been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it for as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly catapulted into leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic justice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked 
at the south's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenwards. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise up from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being non-conformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time where the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace, outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on. In the conviction, they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in numbers, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their efforts and example, they brought an end to such ancient evil. Things are different now. So often, the contemporary church is a weak ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound so often it's an arch defender of the status quo if today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church it will lose its authenticity forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century every day I meet young people who, whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organised religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? No. I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the rank of organised religion have broken loose from the paralysing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregation and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia with us. They have gone down the highways of of the South on treacherous rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. Some have been dismissed from their churches and have lost the support of their bishops and fellow ministers. But they have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. 
they have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountains of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation. Because the goal is freedom, abused and scorned, though we may be. Our destiny is tied up with this nation's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the, the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence. Across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears laboured in this country. Without wages, they made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters, while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, they continue to thrive and develop. If, they in, if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. Before closing, I feel impelled to mention one other point in your statement that has troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham Police Force for keeping order and preventing violence. I doubt that you would have so warmly commended the, the, the police force if you had seen its dogs sinking their teeth into unarmed, non-violent Negroes. I doubt that you would have so quickly commended the policemen if you were to observe their ugly and unhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you were to watch them and push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls, if you were to see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys, if you were to observe them, as they did on two occasions, refuse to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together, I cannot join you in your praise of the Birmingham Police Department. It is true that the police have exercised a degree of discipline in handling the demonstrators. In this sense, they have conducted themselves rather non-violently, in public, but for what purpose? I must affirm that it's just as wrong, or perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. I wish you had commended the Negro sit-inners and demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage, their willingness to suffer and their amazing discipline in the midst of great provocation. One day the South will recognise its real heroes. They will be the Jesus James Meredith with the noble sense of purpose that enables them to face jeering and hostile mobs, and with the agonising loneliness that characterises the life of the pioneer. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women, symbolised in a 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride segregated buses, and who responded with ungrammatical profoundity to one who inquired about her weariness. My feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. There will be the young high school and college students, the young ministers of the gospel 
and a host of their elders, courageously and non-violently sitting in at the lunch counters and willingly going to jail for, the con for conscience sake. One day, the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by our, the Founding Fathers in their formulation of the Constitutional and the Declaration of Independence. Never before have I written so long a letter, but what else can, I, can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell, other than write long letters, think long thoughts and pray long prayers? If I have said this, anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my, my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than the brotherhood, I beg to God, forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and that the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr.